Santa Cruz, California in the Recycle Garage, and we've had blue skies for two weekends in a row, but I have a feeling that's not going to hold up. Hmm. Yeah, the fires are coming back, everyone. Well, we'll see. It's the little one. Little one, but Napa's on fire, and they're saying that that's going to come down. I think 800 acres. Yeah, that one blew up too, and for like two to 800 Today yeah, or something like that. it wow. is fire season. We are all gonna burn. But you um, feel like you're a chain smoker. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's get to who is here on the Zoom call with us, uh, holding his wine glass so tenderly. It's Charlie. Yeet, yeet, yeet. All right, and 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 smiling with the look of someone who has a new bike. It's Micah. Hey, yo, yo, wiki, wiki. And uh, let's see, coming to us from his oh-so-crowded garage, it's Bagel. Yes, I am making do for the time being. (laughs) We we will get to that. There's all sorts of new stuff to talk about. And uh, joining us from his shed. uh, Oh, like cat's licking my eyeball. Oh, cat's licking your eyeball. (laughs) and no doubt, uh, no doubt, pantless. I'm expecting that. It is naked, Jim. I had something witty planned until that happened. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we'll be having worms in my eye or something. When a so, tongue uh, hits your eyeball, like yeah. everything goes out the window. Uh, agreed, though. Blue skies. Yeah, nice it. to see some blue skies and stars at night and sunrises. So yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. Last. And let's see. Uh, Miss Emma is doing the DGR ride today. Yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, and actually, what's kind of cool is, you know, last week she said she's going to do the DGR ride, and um, we had a listener who uh, emailed in and said, hey, I want to go meet her, and I want to find out when the ride is meeting, and it said that these are individual rides. Wah, wah. Uh, (laughs) But I forwarded it to her, and so Mike was able to meet up with her and sent me this nice picture of uh, he looks like he's wearing his uh, his motorcycles and misfits shirt and Emma's in some sort of black cat suit like she said she oh, would. Oh, very nice. Oh, that's bitching. Yeah. Excellent. So, yeah. So shout out. Very distinguished. Shout out mm-hmm. to Mike for going and finding Emma. Uh, that wasn't the only listener who found a misfit this week, and we had a lot of guests today at the garage. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of guests. Let's see. Uh, Tracy, Stephanie, Eric, Chris. Um, who else? I'm trying uh, to name the listeners that dropped by. There we had a bunch of people, but like yeah. slow yeah. trickle. Yeah, that was slow Stephanie. trickle. Yeah, it was it was a good day of no productivity whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I know I rolled up, I don't know, maybe like twelve thirty and there were four of y'all sitting there not doing anything. It was actually kinda nice, but it was hot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'll give you a pass. But you know what? And that's the thing. Yeah, the whole point of the garage is to uh, work on old bikes and you know help people fix their bikes. But you know what the byproduct of that is why we do this podcast. Because a lot of times we just sit around talking about things, talking about 
the future and with experiences we went on and and new bikes and new houses and we got a lot to catch up on so let's start with that micah you big big news you sold a bike you bought a bike yeah, so I sold my uh, 2015 Yamaha FC6R, which I had previously bought from Charlie. So that was the very first bike that I sat on the back of before I was even interested in riding, which was a little bittersweet, but I'm promised that I'll get pictures of the bike going on new adventures and new yeah. roads. It did not look like a 2015. No, absolutely did not. It did look like it had 55,000 miles on it, which it did. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, that was that was fun but bittersweet. Um, and I sold it within three days of posting it for exactly. Go ahead. As, uh, yeah, as I say, exactly. Jim, are you listening? Three. Are you talking to me? Yeah, she sold her bike in three days. With, I know that's uh, awesome. Exactly what I uh, had posted the Craigslist amount for, which has never happened to me without people like haggling me down or whatever. Yeah, so that was really quick and really exciting. Um, and so Charlie was like, hey, let's immediately go to the store or go to the bike like, stop. Let's go to the dealership. <laughs> so, you know, we, we were talking about last week about how the prices are crazy. I I studied all the pricing and the values and, and I came up with the formula. And it's really easy. You take the blue book, you double it, divide it by three and add the years of age of your cat. Isn't that how Mormons Mormons get married? Now you pick your bride. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it was a little ridiculous how uh, quick that was. Especially, I imagined that I would get like two to four hundred dollars less than I had posted yeah. for. But well, and I'm, I mean, the posted price wasn't a bad price for the bike. It was a. It was a little bit higher than I thought that I would get for sure Good. because uh, yeah. it has 55,000 miles on it and it's done a lot of things. But the bigger question here is how long of a gap was it between selling a bike and buying a bike? About three and a half hours. How did you do it? You went three and a half hours without a bike. I felt so bad for you. She's contractually ob obliged to own a running motorcycle. So. Yeah. So because I'm uh, in CMS or the yeah CMSP, um, I'm contractually obligated to have a running motorcycle and all that, which is a fantastic thing to have on my contract. So I decided, uh, or, and I do have a Grom, but I immediately was like, well, let's go look at the bike. So I came home, it just followed me home, I promise. Uh, it was a 2020 a Yamaha MT-07, and that has been my dream bike for a long time. I've really wanted the, I've loved the FZ-07 since I saw the first one that I'd seen ever in a parking lot in the lime green, whatever, detailing and color on the wheels, um, and just nice. fell in love. And I've like, lo I've loved the idea of having one ever since. And so I went to a bike store in San Jose, uh, sat on the bike, they told me a price, um, and I ran away with it. Um, yeah, everything just kind of worked out. Yeah, it worked out a lot easier and quicker than I thought it would, and I'm, I'm so stoked. This is the first bike that I have picked out for myself. 
because even my my first bike, my GS500, um, Emma basically told me this is what to look for. Uh, my second bike, when we got the Grom, a friend sent me that uh, the link and was like, hey, we should go check this out. Um, and my previous bike, the FZ6R, was Charlie's bike, and I bought it because I had ridden it from him and loved the bike and wanted to own it and ride it more often. Um, so this is the first bike that I bought new and the first bike that I picked out for myself and made the decision to get and actually did it. The thing and I'm most impressed with is that you are, what, 18 years old and you bought your first bike? Yes. 19? How old are you now? I'm 22. That is not possible, Jim. Does that even sound possible? <laughs> that happens. Trust me. I know. Yeah, that's awesome. I was 18 when I got my uh, first motorcycle and my license. So big congratulations. Wow. It's a beautiful bike. Is it is awesome. a great bike. Yeah, congrats. Thank you. I'm so excited. If anyone's curious about the color, it's the gray one with the red and red orange wheels. It's awesome. <clears throat> And if, cool. if I remember uh, seeing one of those lives, remember we did that go kart track day at Kanakaya's uh, yeah. cornering school. Yeah. Uh, the class after us was probably a better class. A guy had one of those bikes and he was ripping on it and it sounded super cool. Now, I like those. Those are super great. I think you'll have a lot of fun. It's awesome. I have to, um, because it's a new engine and I'm breaking it in, um, I'm trying to keep it under 5,000 RPMs, which is what it says in the uh, manual to do. But it's so hard. I rode it to and from work this morning, and I'm used to going a lot quicker to and from work than I was this this afternoon yeah and this morning but you know you know Just what wait. you know what is yeah, better I'm, you know what what's better than those. getting a new bike what's that getting Nothing. two new bikes i'm working on this <laughs> jim will you what? sell the 225 to charlie to give to micah at a very good price <laughs> i don't know maybe yeah this, this is the deal i'm trying to work it's tall i hadn't thought about it no i hadn't thought about it i don't know a dumpster deal. <laughs> okay, sure. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. Jim, we talked about it the other day. Talked about what? The 225. But <laughs> well, now he's put on the spot. Idiot. Live I don't even know what you're talking about. You idiot. Uh, that's the deal. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the TTR 225, a new home in, in, in Micah's garage with Charlie paying for it. <laughs> The Sounds bike that you don't own, that you don't want, that you're getting for someone else with someone else's money. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think she. <laughs> Sounds about right. I think it's the perfect bike because, as much um, uh, as as much riding as Mike has done, as much training as she has done, she has little experience actually riding dirt, and I think that is the right bike for her. A nice I know. TTR two twenty five. I'm a dirt instructor for kids, and I don't even enjoy dirt. I got to get better at it for sure. I've been trying. <laughs> well, I like action. What can I say? Hey, and I'm a perfect example, right, Jim? It's about having the right bike to make it fun. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if there is a bike you like to make it fun. I the know, big bike you like the most. But I even think when you're having fun on the big bike, you're really not having fun. <laughs> on the street, I on the pavement, you're not, having fun. I do not like dirt riding, but I keep doing it. So it's just my, I, I don't just have the right bike. It, and that's okay. It's just that's a okay. good excuse to keep buying new bikes. They don't, they don't make the right bike, like Emma would say. They don't make that twin 500. So once they do, then you'll like dirt biking. I don't know, maybe. But you know what I could use uh, more than a new bike? What's that? 
a new big shop. Mm-hmm. Just like yeah, a hair big guy. shop for sure. Oh yeah, that's yep. me on the ground. Well, the bike was taking a nap. <laughs> yep. Uh, somebody here got another new thing. Bagel, tell us what you got. Well, uh, I bought a house. What? House with best thing ever. A an a ginormous shop in the back. What? Shred. Yep. Yep, it's a little town that's in Oregon, awesome. uh, west of west of Eugene, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a you know a great great little house, <clears throat> and uh, I uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting up there probably within the next month, wow. and um, yeah, the shop is like 24 by 40. Uh, it's all finished. <laughs> yeah, it's, Jim. Jim looks around as he could touch both walls with his hands. Yeah, bigger than my house. Yeah, bigger than my house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it yeah. is absolutely amazing, and I, you know, I decided to start start looking up there after. You know, cause I've, been, I've had a dream to buy a house for for many years, and I've been nothing but frustrated here in Santa Cruz. And um, the closest that I ever came was earlier this year. There was a house way up in the Santa Cruz Mountains that I was thinking about buying, and um, it was an off grid property with uh, you know no utilities except a phone line. And uh, the problem was like, it was only it could only be bought you know cash only. And I've been saving up for a long time, but I didn't have enough to to buy this place outright. And I tried to work out a deal, you know, to find out some way of making something happen, but just couldn't couldn't make it happen. Ended up fall, the deal ended up falling through. Somebody else bought the place, and eleven days later, it burned up in the fires here in Santa Cruz. Oh, oh my God! Yeah. Oh, so geez. I I literally dodged a bullet. Because if that deal yeah. worked out and I had moved up there like in like the spring or summer, I would have had all my stuff. That up is there. wild. And, oh, the scooter's and, gone. And, oh my god. Yeah, goodness. everything would have been gone. That, wow. that was literally minutes from where the fire started. And the people wow. in that, that area only had like they got out with the shirts on their backs and that was it. Wow. Um, so I just the way it was just by you know, complete dumb luck the way it worked out. Um, I avoided a, a, a terrible fate um, with what happened here, and um, so I I just decided, you know, I've something in me just said like I've got to start looking, and I started looking up in Oregon, and because um, I knew that there's there was just no way that I could find something down here. I, and, I, I'd like to point out for what you yeah. paid for the house there, <clears throat> tr- double that to buy a yurt with an outhouse here. Yep, basically. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, you might you might need to build the outhouse yourself, but yeah. <laughs> what do you pay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it. What it's just things are so expensive down here that, you know, looking up there, it was it was a whole different ball game. And you know, and I, I spent a couple of weeks looking around, and this place popped up, and it just seemed perfect. And I went for it, and just the way things worked out, um, I ended up getting it. Yay! That's awesome. Well done, man. Congratulations. So basically, you Thanks. bought a shop that came with a house. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. The the shop <laughs> yeah. is uh, <laughs> is not that much smaller than the house. <laughs> so I I now have room for all of the bikes, all of the parts, all the tools, all the shop. You know, it's it's going to be an absolute dream come true. So and, uh, what is the right amount of bikes to have with that shop? I. Don't know yet. That was a trap, Bagel. That was a trap. <laughs> it's plus one. It's the amount of bikes that you have once they're all running. 
Yes, that is the right amount for sure. And now that you have the shop space to be able to work on them. Right. That will make things so much easier. And uh, yeah, and, and, and with some, some long rainy winters up there, I'll have plenty of time to work on bikes. So, so that'll be, uh, I'm looking forward to getting a lot, a lot of things done. Yay. I'm excited for you. There's like, there's cool moto culture and all that kind of stuff too. You'll, it'll be oh, yeah. fun. We'll miss you for sure. But oh, yes, we'll have, you'll I, have a great time up there. Yeah, I, I will definitely miss everybody here. And that's that was that was the hardest part of making this decision. You know, was was knowing that I'd have to say goodbye to everybody, especially here at the Recycle Garage. You know, because it's been such a big part of my life for the last six and a half years now. Yeah. Um. You know. So, but it's you know I. I I hope that we will still keep in touch. And, and if you guys want to come up and visit, you know, please let me know. Um, you know, there's some great writing to be had up there as well. But so. it doesn't have to end, Bagel, because oh, no. I'm going to suggest that you open up your own recycle garage. <laughs> Put out <laughs> a couple chairs. That's all you got to do. Pass the torch. This is true. A beer this fridge and a couple chairs, and they will come. Yeah, when I'm sitting around on the Sundays with, you know, missing missing the garage and not being able to be here maybe maybe i'll end up doing that we'll see maybe you can even open the re-scooter garage no that doesn't there work. you go now you're talking mm. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see mm. yeah i mean there's yeah. quite a scooter culture up there isn't there yeah yeah there are a lot of scooters i have some friends in uh, eugene nearby and uh, up in portland and other parts around the state so yeah there's uh there's very active scooter culture up there and i'm looking looking forward to being there and being able to go to a lot more of the rallies well that's exciting um i have an update on the kz 400 project jim yes i have been working on it uh (laughs) so it had a it had a weak spark I ended up changing out the reg rack, the coils, and the condenser. And while I still had it on the lift, I uh, checked there was spark, and I spat spark. So I put everything you know back together. I rolled it off the, the lift, and I lost spark. In fact, I lost all power somehow. <laughs> I don't we'll put know. put it back on the lift. I know, right? <laughs> Quickly. Somebody said, oh, maybe it was grounding out on the lift. No, I don't think so. Mm. Oh, so I, that was like, I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too hot to work on electrical. I'm just going to walk away. But uh, yeah, yeah, too I hot for that kind of silliness. things. Though um, I did buy Chinese stuff. So there is that. Uh, but you know what? Hey, in my defense, that's what's available. And a it's lot not of it. Is it? Um, well, here's the thing. Um, there's a lot of these components like coils and condensers. They fit on uh-huh. so many bikes. They make tons of them. So they're very cheap. I didn't buy the uh-huh. cheapest, but trying to find, you know, the factory ones is hard and very expensive. Um, uh-huh. So I, I, I'm, they're just kind of universal stuff. So we'll see. We'll see. But it doesn't need to get me cross-country or anything. Um, but I'm getting closer. I'm definitely getting closer with that bike. There's not many more things uh, that I can replace. So we'll see. But, um, yeah, if – I don't know. Uh, I, I'm also working on the paint scheme for it. I think I've shown some of you. Um, the bike is a 1975 and I wanted to get something that said the seventies, though what I chose is the 80, something from the eighties, but it still to me has that same thing. And, uh, I'm not going to say what it is exactly, but I will say if you ever want a cool vintage design, look up AMF Harley. 
The AMF Harleys actually had some really cool designs on their tanks, like the decals hmm. and stuff. And yeah. um, that's where I'm digging They're kind of cooler now than they were then. Yeah, but they're so they're kind re- of retro they, now. they captured that retro 70s, 80s feeling. That they do, yep. Um, that is like, ooh, this is kind of cool. But and that is the you know the the most hated Harleys of all time. So yeah, uh, that's where I where I'm finding something inspiration. It was either that or I was looking at the AMC cars. Also, I think had that kind of <laughs> styling. Were you were you looking at like a poop brown color or something like that? <laughs> you, you, well, you, you just like that Helvetica. Is it brown? Oh. Yes, it's brown and orange and yellow, I think, on black. Okay. Which sounds disgusting, but it, it's not. That's it really very isn't. 70s. <laughs> no. it Yeah, it's not. So I was listening to uh, one of our friends' podcasts not too long ago, Chasing the Horizon. You guys know Wes over there? He puts on a good show. And he had, uh, I guess, Quentin Wilson, who has an extensive history um in, in, in motorcycles uh, industry. And he was telling about all of his history and then he's talked about uh, like, oh, and when I was at uh, Moto Sis, well, that's a whole nother show. And then he kept talking about his history and I went, whoa, wait a minute. I wanna talk about Moto Sis because a lot of people don't know the story. It's pretty darn fascinating uh, story. And Quentin worked there. So I called him up and said, hey, come and join us and let's tell the story of Motosis. And he is here now. How you doing, Quentin? I'm doing well. Thank you for joining us. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. And, I, and we'll, we'll cover a couple of these things, but I find it fascinating that for a lot of uh, guests we've had on the show or topics we've talked about, mm-hmm. you kind of uh, circle around. I was telling you about uh, how we had Debbie Evans on a couple of weeks ago who rode the Ducati in, in the Matrix. And then you said, the stunt, yeah, the stunt person, sure. Yeah. But you're involved with that, aren't you? Well, we back in that time, um, the bikes that were used in that movie were they they all came through Pro Italia Ducati shop in uh, Glendale, California, northern LA County, and I was a mechanic then. So I, there was a a raft of them. There was like six or seven of them, and we had to prep them all. And of course, they only gave us like a couple of days to prep all of them, and then go put miles on them and do all the stuff to get them ready for the shoot. And then they were gone. Poof. And many months later, maybe even, well, I don't remember. It was a very long time. They came back to us, and it was one of the most extreme things I've ever seen, where every single one of them was painted, but they never disassembled a thing on the bikes. <laughs> they they just masked every single Ducati 996 off. Every Zeus fastener, which are quarter-turn fasteners, they were all painted in that makeshift green, um, kind of a dark, deep green, different than the one that ended up the production, but whatever looks good on camera. But everything was painted without removing one panel. It was the trippiest thing I've ever seen. And then they all went to the ether. Who knows what happened to those bikes? But it was an interesting thing to be part of. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And then we've also talked extensively about Alta Motorcycles, and you had history there, too. You've, you've been yeah. everywhere, and now... You're at SW Motec that just opened up the first uh, U.S. store. I mean, this is something that has been getting imported in. Um, I love SW Motec. I got the bags and the racks on my Africa Twin. Jim, you oh, got a bunch. Do you really? It. Oh, yeah. 
Yes, I have crashed okay, cool. my SW Motec gear numerous times. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. and yeah, and yeah he's he's got an Africa good. twin too. Africa twin. We are twinning with you, Wait, Quentin. Seriously? Yeah. So all of us have Africa twins now. Oh yeah. Yay. Except I got the Yamaha. <laughs> yeah, forget him in the Tenere. I got the Adventure Sport uh, DCT. Right on. I have a. I just got a 2020 standard standard transmission. Yeah, that's what uh, Jim opted for. Yeah, except the new one's a little more got a little more horsepower. I want to say. Well done. Yeah, they're fun, huh? Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I'm pretty stoked, especially after you know I worked at Ducati for a long time, so I was kind of in the multi-strata realm. And uh, I would keep dirt bikes to dirt bikes, right? I have real dirt bikes, Honda dirt bikes, but then I'd try and bastardize the Ducatis to go off-road as much as possible. And they were fine, but certainly not as good as this thing. It's pretty impressive how damn good this thing is on-road and off-road. It's crazy. So I'm pretty stoked on it. I've only had it for a couple months. Yeah, and and I love that we got SW Motec to give us a lot of parts, um, which – We'll come back to SW Motec. There's so much to talk sure, about there. Sure. Um, but I wanted to talk about Motosis. So um, how much of, of Michael's history are you familiar with, Quentin? There's, it's fits and spurts as far as the deep history of Michael. Um, and I don't want to try and pretend like I'm some sort of an autobiographical person when nope. it comes to, you know, right? I don't... Uh, I, I just know that some main points I can discuss about where he came from. Great. And then I could discuss pretty much the timeline that I was on and how I, how I came in, into it when I first saw it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But I, there's a lot of the beginnings of the motosis part that I am fuzzy on as far as when he started doing the thing, right? right. Exactly. But I can get kind of close and close enough for most people to get informed, I'll say. All right. So I'll I'll start it out. I mean, we talk a lot about the Briton here. The Briton is one of our favorite bikes. In fact, it is the number one up the butt bike. I know you haven't heard that term, so I'll explain it. An up the butt bike is a bike you look at and you go, I'd take it up the butt for that, right? And the Briton repeatedly comes up the number one uh, bike and What's fascinating is the Motosis is a very similar story, but not many people know about it. Um, I met him years ago at Laguna Seca. I still have the poster up in the garage from that. Um, And so I wanted to share the story. This is a bit of a history hole uh, on Michael Siz. So for those who don't know, here's basically the summary. This architect, successful architect, decides he's going to build a MotoGP bike. He designs his own motor that is unlike any motor out there. We'll talk a bit about that. He designs his own suspension. He designs everything, builds, you know, spends millions of dollars and builds a bike that is an amazing bike, right? Does that sum it up right there, Quentin? In, in the, the, the grand scheme. Yes. So, and here's the thing, it, it, was, it was a long road from here for him. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that engine that he designed that was so fascinating. Um, at the you time, the know. MotoGP, they were racing, you know, leader bikes, 1,000cc bikes. So that's what he set out to build. And what he did was he designed an <sighs> engine. So almost all the bikes now, they're going to be inline fours, right? Or you have a Ducati, it's a twin, but still... Um, any any motor that you have 
on any motorcycle except for electric. It has spinning, gyroscopic effect. Things are spinning, right? So when you drop down into a turn, you're fighting against that because it wants to right the bike. Just like when you accelerate out of a turn, it's going to pull it up out. What he designed, it's an inline, sort of inline four that goes from the front to the rear. And it's very thin. The whole motor is just a little bit wider. It's just like as wide as the cylinder, right? And he made two... um, all right, so the the cranks, I'm trying to explain this. So what he did is he cut it in half. And so each half had its own crankshaft and they were spinning in opposite directions so that it balanced itself out and became weightless. So there was no gyroscopic effect. And what happened was, and, and the bike is so thin, thin and narrow, right, that you could just drop down into a turn effortlessly you could pin it in the turn and it's not going to bring it up it's all going to be controlled by your input to the steering and the suspension right not by the gyroscopic effect oh yeah it's fascinating how he created this somebody who wasn't an engineer and when you compare it to like Honda, who has like 100 years of engineering and and figuring out how all those things work and fail and work and fail, right? And they did this in like, I think like nine months they built this. I heard, I, th- I think it was, well, it was like from conception to having it built was really fast. Yeah. yeah. Well, there, there's a lot to this. Okay, so the beginnings were the idea of the trying to cancel out the forces mm-hmm. that are caused by the crank mostly right and and michael's eyes then trying to figure out a way to package that and 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 whatnot so the first the first iteration which was done in michael's carriage house mm-hmm. um and so michael was not an architect michael was an interior designer he was not a degreed architect Got he it. came from um there was a school in New York, and I'm, I I, I want to say something Parsons? like Pratt. It's, I think it's Parsons. Yes, school that, of design. That, that sounds familiar, mm-hmm. but again, don't let's yeah. not quote, quote me on that. But yeah. he had started at that school. I think he left and just started doing his own designing. Right. Ended up owning an architecture firm after yeah. many years of working on high-level celebrity uh, interior design stuff. One of his better friends was Lenny Kravitz. He did all of the hotel stuff for Red Rock, but he would do like bars mm-hmm. and got to be good friends with, um, I don't know, the, there's a, these brothers that started running the UFC and it's an Italian name and I think they're from Texas. He got involved with them. So he had this base of people from his design times that mm-hmm. were able to help get him uh, funding to continue with this, with this project, which he started in his carriage house by lopping a GSX-R1000 engine in half, then repositioning it so that um, they're the two ends of the crankshafts uh, rotated against each other with gears. So yeah. that was the first iteration. <clears throat> wow. That that was a, a, a pretty strange thing. So they did a mule engine that ran on a stand to prove, mm-hmm. prove out the concept. Then they did a actual running engine that fit within inside of a frame structure that was a bit of a visual only like it actually looked like a motorcycle it had wheels that suspension but it was more to show off 
the concept. So the forks um, that, uh, you know, with the six X flex was what he called right. it was a way to tune the, tune the forks, et cetera. And then also the trail blocks, we call them trail blocks because it was how you adjusted the trail. Uh, and it was a very cool, simple system to do that. Um, and then also to show what he wanted to do with making a digressive linkage on the rear, which was kind of a big deal uh, to his mind. Instead of a progressive, he wanted to experiment or have the ability to change that uh, spring rate uh, however he wanted it. So that was why there was these two weird springs mm-hmm. with seemingly no uh, interconnected part in between them. Um, so you could see them with a, basically there was a cable running through them at the back. So the, many of these things were started with that initial concept. Then it was with the money that he got after showing that concept off. Yep. And I think that was the first one that he ran at MotoGP. So he had convinced somebody to let him do a, a sighting lap and carry the American flag around. And I believe he did that with the mule bike, the first iteration. And then that's what got enough people to say, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fund this. And that's where he started the second um, main iteration of the bike, which is what I got involved with um, a, a couple years after that. So this would have been 2003, four, mm-hmm. five. Then 06 was when he, they first started. And again, this would be detailed in a, in a movie that was made called birth of a racer yes so if anybody can get their hands on that i believe somebody has uploaded that to the youtube yep, it's on youtube right so if you can watch that that will help you understand the dynamics that are going on with with what we're talking about it'll help yeah it basically so essentially, gets you up to that point where he's got a bike running before and i mean it's just up to that i think 2006 i think so so 2000 are you saying that there was a he set it up to where there was a variable linkage that could basically affect the leverage of the spring rate to, instead of being able to swap out springs, you just change the leverage or whatever. That would be the idea and that you would be changing a couple of key things on the rear suspension. There would be that he, he was trying to do this with a concentric swing arm pivot. That's the only way you can do this. So the, the key is that it was a concentric swing arm pivot that way. I don't know if you guys have ever dealt with this or understood this, but usually you've got chain pull effect when you have a sprocket in front of a swing yep. arm pivot. Anytime you accelerate, it pulls the rear of the bike down yep. and that affects the suspension. So you're always compensating for that. In most cases, there's always a positive traction event that happens when you have that happen. So we all tune around it and it's actually a net positive thing, but it is a tuning parameter, and if you take that away, like BMW did with its 450 motocross bike, then it, it's a, a weird behavior that you have to then adjust for, much like when you have a Bomoda Tessie that all of a sudden you don't have fork dive or that you could engineer fork dive in. It kind of creates a weird scenario for most riders that are used to riding a motorcycle that's conventional. So this was his idea. As you take away that chain pull aspect of it, you make a concentric swing arm pivot, and then you make the adjustments that you're going to make with the spring and the linkage separated from that so that you can, um, that you can try and do a good digressive without having to worry about the, the, the chain pull. I think that's kind of the key crux of that. So by doing that, would you remove the, um, 
when you throttle it, it leverages the swing arm down adding traction would you remove that or would that still stay the same? effectively yeah i mean the weight transfer would happen you still get weight transfer but not with as much squat with the chain pulling with the essentially the 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 sprocket if you look at the sprocket as a little mini lever on the front yeah it would pull the rear lever which is another the rear sprocket is a lever as well depending on the depending on the ratio you use i mean this is a tuning factor that we anybody uses in racing if you're when i was a grave yamaha this is where i learned this is that you're using the sprocket themselves your 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 gear ratio is not just the ratio that gets you around the track fastest. You actually have to play to, well, if I put that larger front sprocket on, it's going to have more of an effect and it's going to change my uh, squat. And then that's going to change the way I change, uh, adjust my damping or my spring rate, et cetera, et cetera. So in this way, you're trying to eliminate all of that. And that way you can adjust the spring rate and not affect the damping ratio. I think, I think that was his main idea. With that said, nobody else has done this before or since, so I don't know how effective, and we never got to test that out, but that's, that's part of the story, right, is that he was trying to shoot so many things into this to get intellectual property mm-hmm. so that he could justify the patents, so that he could justify getting funding, right? So if you look at the patents that he made, some of them are out-and-out out ridiculous, but they were a try to just have something that's special to get the funding, which he did. He got a lot of funding, right? And even though some of it might be a little bit janky, a lot of it was really interesting. So that was that. that's the kind of the long and the short of that. But with the rear suspension, I, I can't tell you what worked and what didn't because we never got to test it out, right? We never got to prove that out, and nobody has really adopted anything like it since. And if you note the later electric bikes that it used, to success at Isle of Man. I don't think any had this specific system on it. And the front suspension was also unique um, in that it didn't use the springs in the forks. I think the forks were just guides, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, And that first set of forks were, uh, I don't know if any of you are into bicycles, but there's something called a Cannondale Lefty. Are you aware of that? Mm -mm. It was a single-sided fork Cannondale mountain bike. And it had this weird system of roller, linear roller bearings that were um, barrel shaped, not, not Mm -hmm. circular. Right. And um, like needle bearings. Yep. And that's what, that's what the initial forks were. They were like octagons. I believe they were octagonal. They might've been pentagonal. I can't remember, but you had to set these weird little linear bearings Oh man, was that a nightmare? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Not use a traditional shim stack. Oh God, no! There was a shock centrally located in the steering head, so you pull the shock through the steering head, and it was attached to a bridge between the lower fork tubes, which were not tubes any longer. So there were these tubes that were these guides. Yeah, yeah, they're guides, and and then you're using a shock like Mm -hmm. a, a. BMW GS or whatever, but in a- exactly, it's very, very yes. similar in 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 effect to that GS look. What you're thinking about, but yeah. without the A arms holding the fork tubes. You know what I mean? Like there's so there's yeah. the the Hossack style, almost Hossack style 
but not. It was direct, direct just like forks. Because that a whole crazy thing. BMW system doesn't work because of all the added weight and everything. It feels great, but there's the fuckload of weight and it's racing, right? Well, from a racing standpoint, from a road racing, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't even want to try and comment on BMW's BMW isms, right? If it if it worked, you'd see it on a MotoGP bike straight yeah. up, right? So like, if it, does it does it work in a street bike in a large six hundred and fifty pound street bike? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys have ridden them, but it's surprisingly good, like for what they are, uh, even on a even on some of the other models that are more uh, road based, right? But in this case, it was trying to keep everything as small and light as possible without using the extra A-arms and extra linkages and extra complexity. So the complexity was in this, at the time, in this this system that was really horrible that used these linear bearings. The subsequent versions, while I was there, got iterated on to use a linear bearing that was roller bearings and then had specific guides like, and I, I know this is going to be a weird one, but like a Christini two-wheel drive dirt bike that has linear bearings that drive the front wheel through shafts. So it ended up working okay, but eventually that was abandoned as well. So you'd have to see, you'd have to look very closely at the later model Motos's E1 from probably 2012, 13. And they were super sexy. They had these bitchin' like rails. So the sports were the same thing that we're talking about where there was a shock actuated somewhere on the bike but the act, what you saw as quote unquote quarks were mm-hmm. these awesome guided on rails things. It was pretty cool. So it had to be iterated on to work, but the initial idea was there and it was sound. And so we've been talking about the C1. This was really the first bike that he exactly. made. And yeah. so he eventually made two of them and was having them tested out by actual racers because he was the test rider for a lot of this. Uh, which is really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but then he finally got riders who were much better than him who had glowing reports. I mean, there are people, riders saying like th- they've never ridden anything like this that responds like this. It had great potential, but it also had uh, constant failure, just little things being blown out or valves or just something going on, uh, which happens. I mean, this is why it takes a long time to work out the bugs of a bike um so quentin you want to talk about so he developed the c1 and with the the goal of getting it into the moto gp and you want to tell everyone what happened with that well uh, all right so the idea was that uh, he wanted to try and get it and make a, a moto gp bike but i think again this went this played to the getting funding so mm-hmm. the idea was hey i want to do this crazy thing I think there probably was enough hubris involved where he thought that he could make this bike in a timely manner to get that done. Yeah. Um, it, it, from, from my standpoint, from the expensive seats, I say that was ridiculous because there'd just be no way you could, you could do that with as many things as you wanted to implement at once yeah. that you had to, that you had to in order to get the funding. So it was kind of like, a, a absolute rock and a hard place. It's either you try for it all or you don't do any of it. So while most of us were looking at it like, hell, try and get this engine going in a normal chassis, as normal as you can, iterate on the engine over there on this side, and then try and do the forks on, on this chassis over here, et cetera, et cetera. You try and you space it out, but you didn't have the time. You never had the time. 
because he was always vying for the next million or two or 10 or whatever mm-hmm. it was. So it always had to be a Hail Mary throw. Every single thing they did was a Hail Mary throw. And it was a bit tiresome, yeah. uh, but it was part of the process. How, so many, how many overnights it, did you do working there? A lot. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I made a lot of money. So when I first started there, I, I had been a contractor for Team Graves Yamaha as most in the mid 2000s, most mechanics, chassis mechanics um, were contractors. And this would be even at the factory level, mm-hmm. but mainly on the satellite team level. So Aaron Racing, Attack, Graves, we were all contractors. And you would, you would, you know, say, all right, I'll work for this much for the year. And you kind of just went off of what other people you thought were right, et cetera, et cetera. So when I went to SIS, I was like, hey, all right, so I can just be, I already have a, uh, an S Corp set up. Uh, I'll just be contracting. Like, no, we can't do that. So I guess somebody had, had screwed with them on overtime. So, and, and now I know why, because I ended up as a hourly person. And because of that, to go back to that overnight, holy crap, I made a lot of money because I did a lot of overtime, right? Yeah. And this was a year and a half of, of that. Um, and so when I started, that, I think this is pertinent to the, to the story. Mm-hmm. So the, the first time I saw this bike was at a team, a Dunlop tire test at Fontana. Uh, we used to call it Fontucky. <laughs> I, I think they might have called it Auto Club Speedway. I can't remember, though. So out of Fontucky, we were out testing all, all the big big name race teams. This is 2005, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear this thing start up somewhere in the pit, and you're like, "What the f is that?" And uh, you, none of but none of us knew because we're all focused on our own stuff, right? Right. And you hear this weird, god awful sound, and I think this was the initial iteration. So this was the GSXR engine, sawed in half, and then re positioned back together as a as a single four-cylinder engine but essentially is two parallel twins yeah. and it goes by and it sounds like a twingle so it's almost like they're firing two yeah. at once it was a wow. it was the most bizarre sounding thing and i think he tried to go around the track a couple times but I, it was more posturing right i think he was trying to put himself in front of the teams trying to put himself mm-hmm. in front of the in, in front of anybody that could see him to, to try and ga- garner some help or support or something like that. Right. That was my first viewing of it. So I, after you hear it in a break between sessions, I walked over to it and you see it. And it was a, it was a sight to behold. But for those of us that were in the racing realm, you, you could see a few of the kind of gnarly, like uh, homegrown things that were done to it. And it was a bit scary. I was like, well, good luck to him. <laughs> You know what I mean? <laughs> Basically, uh, most of us, most of us in the in the road racing realm, especially at that time, a lot of us had come from two-stroke road racing. Yeah. So there's a high level of race craft that comes from building a two-stroke race bike that is kind of lost on all these street bike four-stroke things. Not completely, but we were all fairly discerning. And when we see this, when you see a bike that's kind of cobbled together, you're like, well, good luck, right? Yeah. So that was my first experience with it. Fast forward a couple of years, I'd met my then uh, partner in Portland, and I'd always wanted to go. Uh, that she always wanted to get back to Portland, so I saw Motuses was hiring, and um, I had been working for a racer named Doug Henry, who was a yeah. uh, Supermoto racer, mm-hmm. who still is. 
Um, unfortunately, during that season, he crashed his practice bike and paralyzed himself, which then left me floating in the team. So it was unfortunately a good exit to both exit Los Angeles and get out of that and go to um, go to Portland, right? So I see that they're hiring. I contact them, got a call back very quickly. Um, they had me ride up because they, they couldn't afford at the time to fly. So I rode my ST2 up to Portland from Los Angeles and had a beginnings of a conversation with them, got to tour the facility, et cetera. And again, it was like, you could see that there was a hard scrabble bunch of people that are trying to make something with nothing. At the same time, the look was very high as Michael did with everything. The look was supreme. His facility, the the look of all the stuff, he, he had an eye for that. So at the time I was like, well, I'm not going to take the risk right now, but maybe we can do a working interview. And that it was what plays to that movie birth of a racer. So mm-hmm. at the very end of the, the movie birth of a racer was when Jeremy McWilliams was riding the bike. Yeah. That was my first weekend doing a working interview with them at Miller Motorsports park. Wow. So I got kind of a trial by fire. My first experience with that team was getting there that week and then probably pulling, I think it was two or three overnighters because of multiple failures, dropped valves, engines out, crazy amounts of work. I, I, it, it's, it's fuzzy, but it, it's, it's, it's hard to explain how much work went into that first week. And I, I didn't even work for them yet, right? I essentially was working in that scenario for the first time. And I saw very clearly that these people needed help. Uh, they had, uh, you know, assembled a good crew of people, but didn't necessarily have a lot of um, day-to-day chassis building experience. So there were some some holes there. That and everybody was just spread thin, and it was mostly his father Terry yeah. that was shouldering the bulk of the build. And I think it was because of Terry's concern for his son that he would keep a hold of all the things and then make it too difficult. Uh, for anybody else to come in and potentially fuck it up because I think he was worried about his son's welfare mm. because frankly, the bike was a, a worrisome thing. Anytime you got on it, oh my God, the oil leaks, right? I mean, it was yeah. just an unreal. So when you guys talk about how quickly it was developed, that's great, but it, it wasn't quickly developed and, and good. It was quickly developed and had multiple high level failures and it could be, the heat treatment on the gears that geared the cranks to each other. It could be the valves dropping because of a weird call out spec on the shims. It could be the oil leaks from Mm. crazy machining tolerances that could never be uh, met in anywhere other than a Cosworth engine facility. It, It was a, it was such a laundry list of crazy shit and it was all a mishmash together. Meanwhile, you're trying to keep an eye on, weirdo linear bearings on the forks and <laughs> springs that weren't staying in their perches because they're the only things in the world that look like that and behave like that or carbon fiber wheels that were specked out strange and on and on and on. Right. So I got to see that right off the bat. And I, I recognized that, Hey, I have an opportunity to bring a little bit of what I've learned over the past couple of years of working for a, essentially a championship winning AMA race team, which was Graves at the time. They had won the Superstock uh, Championship a couple years while I was there or right while in that realm. So that's what made me go there. 
And that was the start for me was the end of that movie. So right. I was briefly in that movie. You bear, you would not even be able to pick me out. Probably I'd have to, I'd have to go back and watch it, but I was briefly in that movie as the, so that was my start was at the end of that one, which is a bit of a weird thing to think about because then it was another year and a half. So that would have been mid 2007. Mm-hmm. And, and I went through till late 2008, early 2009 was when, uh, it started to kind of crumble. But at, at that time in mid 2007, remember this is pre Lehman brothers crash, mm-hmm. right? So this was still when everybody was still kind of living off the fat of the land and there was money to be had. And then during our, my tenure there, everything started to crash down. So it was a, a lot of that relative to the MotoGP, uh, going, circling back to that, the combination of wanting to go to MotoGP and then MotoGP going to 800, right? Yes, 2007, the FIM changed it to 800cc bikes. So, so that screwed with Michael because his idea, yeah. went, and he was selling on other people, was that he was going to go to MotoGP. That engine, the architecture, was not such that you could easily change the um, change the CC size of it, right? It needed to be, everything was engineered around that 81 millimeter bore. The engine block and the cylinder head were a mono block. Oh. There was no cylinder head gasket. It was a Z-line four, and that means it was a 15 degree V4. It's a bit of a mind blower to kind of think about, look at, but you'd have to see the cylinder heads and the monoblocks. I have a couple of them here at my house. Oh, really? To understand. Wow. Um, Yeah, broken, fucked up ones, right? Um, To see the the complexity. It had three camshafts. One camshaft ran down the center, and that was the intake camshaft. So each one of the four in the V4 used a central intake cam, and then there were two exhaust cams that were geared to the intake cam, and they ran on either side uh, of the of the intake cam. So wow. it was it, it, again, I can't explain how complex this thing was. Not in parts count. And when we we got a Desma Sedici RR, the street bike, um, we got our hands on one in 2008. Michael bought one for his 44th birthday and he got number 44. I believe that was the key. It was a weird thing. And it, it was by happenstance. I believe that's the case. So we got that bike and we started doing a parts count and everybody talked about the hideous complexity of the moto says, and the engineers are like, well, shit, there's more parts in this Desmond Sidichi engine. Why, why is there a problem with ours? And it's not, it's hard to explain. It's not the parts count. It was the architecture that making a cylinder head that, is melded with the block and then having dry liners that go into that and need to be post machined and then trying the machine valve seats that are inside of a, uh, of a tube and then having things break and having to weld them inside because we had a major problem with combustion chambers cracking. And, and the, so the, the resultant failures that came from the complexity of that casting are, are really the story from that mid 2007 to mid 2008, and that's when, that, again, when I came in, they had just started to get a hold on the dyno of of the engine, and this was remember this is a Target 260 horsepower engine designed by uh, a couple of Cosworth engineers, yeah. ex Cosworth but still Cosworth. The the one that did most of the internals had left 
either either quit or had uh, or or got let go. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. He ended up at a high efficiency engine spot down in y'all's area uh, called Pinnacle um, oh. Engines. It's out of I think it's Redwood City. Okay. Or somewhere adjacent to that. Hmm. Um, I can't. I'm blanking on his name right now. I I never met him or I I didn't know him in that time. And then there was a a person, another engineer that just did castings, and his name was Adrian Hawkins. And Adrian was left over to basically head the thing right after I got there. And then there was an engineer that, again, is at Pinnacle as well, um, Tony Wilcox. And he was left in charge of the uh, reciprocating and rotating masses. And this is, again, mid-2007. So they had um, gotten the bike together and from 2006. They ran it at MotoGP, the one you guys know as Mm -hmm. the C1, not the mule, but the real thing. They got it running for 2006. You saw that video. Yeah. That would be in the... the Yeah, I I was there. Yeah. Yeah, same here. Um, And that was was an amazing thing that they got the thing running in that nine-month period or whatever it was, something like that. Right. Crazy. But then after that was when the failures happened over Mm -hmm. and over and over through that winter and into the spring. And that's when I came in that then continued on through that rest of that summer. We get the bike back from that test that you saw in the video with Jeremy McWilliams. Then it was just dyno runs after that. So it was trying to get a hold of why, what would fail, how it would fail and what could be done about it. And unfortunately, again, it boiled down to that engine block and it was very, very, very complex. And it ended up being like a cascade of problems that were from from the casting itself to the machining of it, where it was machined, how it was cast. It was cast using a rapid prototype sand casting process out of someplace in Michigan. Hmm. It was crazy. Oof. And then those, it was so complex that it would have all these porosities at the time. And I think that does details in the video and they'd have to go yeah. get it like impregnated with weird, some weird yeah. mill spec technology. Yeah. There was this technology oh, the military used where you'd put uh, cera- liquid ceramics in a vacuum and it would suck it into all the cracks and then it would yeah. cure something crazy yeah. like that. Crazy. That's what they had to do before they figured out what they needed to do with the, with the true, with the first iteration first, right? They figured out how, why there were inclusions, the company that was doing that eventually figured out how to make the castings for the most part. But each one of those castings was really expensive. And then you had to send it to this company in Japan. They call, I think it was called Tamachi. And then they would machine it. And by the time it was done, it was like a $30,000 piece for just yes. the engine block, right? Wow. Well, while I was there, we hired this awesome engineer named Marty Schmitz. From, he was from Mankato, Minnesota. And he was just this kind of rad, very easygoing machinist that just kind of took everything in and then started doing it. And eventually, when he said, I think I can machine that block, then we were able to bring all of the problems in-house and started doing that. Like that summer of 2008, we started to be able to get the blocks from this entity, I, I think somewhere in the Midwest, I'm going to call it Michigan. I think it's Michigan because of the car industry. And then machine them in-house instead of waiting for six months while it was done in Japan. Um, we could do it in-house in like a month turnaround, something like that. I and, mean, we're talking 
And just to clarify, when we said, you know, I said that the MotoGP changed. So then he changed his goal to racing in the AMB, AMA or the World Superbike. So there was to, still to a point, place to go. Is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that was the idea. It was like, well, we're going to try and figure out a way to make this engine as it is and industrialize it like that Desmond Sidici RR that I aforementioned, mm-hmm. right, Desmond Sidici RR, which came out in 2008 with Ducati, was their first V4 production bike, right? Not the Apollo, but a real come to the streets. Uh, production bike that you could buy if you had sixty-five dollars to $85,000, right? Yeah. So his idea was like, well, if Ducati can do that, then maybe that's what I can do with this. So then during this engineering effort that I'm talking about, where we're, making, we're trying to figure out our way around this monoblock, they were also trying to figure out ways to put a starter motor on it or right. do something else to make it like where it actually could be a street bike. Hell, try and find a place to mount a kickstand on that thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And that wasn't really going to happen without more funding, which was while I was there was the Hail Mary scenario. It ended up being just Hail Mary after Hail Mary after Hail Mary, trying to get it in front of people that would um, continue to, to put money into it. And it was a pretty painful thing to watch because it was kind of, I, I would call it a bit of a death rattle, right? I mean, I could see it but there wasn't a whole lot we could do about it other than to just continue to move forward and try and build these engines tighter so that they didn't leak and that the, um, that the, uh, the, nothing would break internally, but that was an exceedingly difficult thing to do. And we were all, all the way all along, um, limited by the power it was putting out. Mm-hmm. It would rarely get past about 160 horsepower. And this is on a super flow engine dyno, super flow, is by and large the best if you're actually trying to do development work. It's not like a dyno jet based off of some weird ethereal strange number that uh, the initial guy decided, well, I'm going to rate all horsepower off of this bike. The Superflow was like a, this is like a real tool that can judge between, you know, one, one to another very well with a water break. And so we were, we were deep in that trying to get the thing to rev out and it wouldn't rev and we never really got our heads around it. It just wouldn't go past about 12,000 RPM, and then it would tie itself in knots and never rev past that. What Meanwhile, it would be up to you. Say that again, Charlie? What's that? What, was there a number that it was supposed to be able to reach as far as RPM? Like theoretical? Yeah, 16,000. 16, and that's straight up. Up above 12 is really where you're going to get all that power, right? Exactly, exactly. So it was great. It made good power to 12,000 RPM. It made good if power it didn't like break. in the mid-range. It made that much power. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, if you looked at the way, like say you look at a dynograph and as the dynograph's climbing up, it, wouldn't, it wasn't like it was, it was turning off at 12,000 RPM. It was accelerating up to it and then just not going any further. And it was creating a lot of heat, a lot. So, mm. and subsequently with a little bit of, of, look back on it, a, a, a couple of the engineers that were involved see that some of the complexity, especially with the counter-rotating crankshaft scenario, it was just too much, there was too many frictional losses, right? Well, well, it's going to be producing a, a great amount of, of force in opposite directions within the crankcase, right? Yeah, and, and normally that isn't that big of a deal, and a lot of people would, a lot of people would look at like the output shaft was a 
uh, you know, the engine was in, in line. It was a longitudinal engine, not, you know what I mean? It was a d- yeah. different than a normal inline four. So you had to take the power um, and, and make it go 90 degrees to make it go out of sprocket to go out of right. chain, right? Right. right? So a lot of people would say, well, there's probably lost efficiency there, and it's nominal. I mean, every Formula One car has multiple ones of those taking it back to the rear wheels. It's fine. It was this counter-rotating of the cranks. And the sheer size of the parts that required to do that. And frankly, at some point during all this, one of the engineers kind of showed me, he's like, hey, in order for us to to rotate the secondary crank backwards, we're actually in, inducing more forces into the, I don't remember if it was clockwise or counterclockwise, than you would normally have with a normal engine that had a single crank. So I think at some point they lost the plot and didn't think about what they were doing. And this one engineer, a younger engineer, started looking at running the numbers on, say, a uh, Yamaha R1 and saw very clearly that when you have a crankshaft rotating, let's say it's counterclockwise, and then it's rotating against a primary gear that's on a clutch, and that clutch itself has so much mass that it cancels out the crankshaft. Most of these engines that you guys are running in your motorcycles, a lot of those forces are automatically canceled by the, the cascade of gear sets that are go back to the rear wheel. So it's a bit of a strange thing to get your head around, especially once you've spent probably somewhere between 10 and $20 million <laughs> to prove out the concept and and it ha- have it be kind of moot. I mean, I get on this bike and rev it, and one of the engineers who had a kind of a particular, I would say, dark sense of humor would say, just sit on that bike and rev it. Don't, don't have it on the stand. Sit on it and rev it. And sure enough, it was like a goozy. I'm not going to kid. Uh, it, was, it, it, would, it would angle over like a goozy, mm. straight up, like a BMW. Yeah. It, mm. it had a, the, the, the tube, they called it a torque tube, so the torque tube that took the energy from, I believe it was the front crank, but I'd have to see it again. It's been a while. And then transferred it through another set of gears to the rear crank was gigantic. So it was like mm-hmm. an order of magnitude bigger than even a standard clutch basket, right? It, it was huge. I have pictures of this stuff somewhere. And having to rotate that, it was that thing that was spinning even though yeah. you had these two little cute little parallel twin cranks rotating against each other, the mass of that other thing, you know, usurped yeah. both of those things. Right. Yeah. So it was a bit of a, a, a crux point and it, it, but we needed to continue selling it. And that's essentially what M- Michael would do. Meanwhile, trying to figure out what the next iteration would look like well, with, with the same, the idea was solid. The idea of not having these forces and then putting the engine long ways instead of across, I still feel that there was some validity to it. What Michael's intention was, was good, but the execution ended up being uh, unreal, like so hideously complex that it was just not something that we could manage. And, and, and I, I, I'm not even getting into how difficult it was to work on. Like, I, I can't even put it in the words how difficult it was to get to any nut and bolt to get to do anything. And we had to do everything every time so it was it, it made the development cycles that much longer it's so, not like we could just get the thing on the dyno and iterate on something and then get back 
it was a two-day process at least to get the engine disassembled and reassembled. We got to the point where we made a single cylinder and we used one multiple of these broken um, monoblocks, which is why I have two of them, mm. to make singles out of the engine to do testing, basically single cylinder testing. It, it was insane. Wow. And that was about the time where Terry Sizz, I think he either had a stroke or a heart attack. Mm. He had both during Oof. the times that I knew him. Not a heavy stroke, but like enough to be like, Terry, you need to go the F home yeah. and, and just relax. Because he had, he had put all the weight of his son's dreams on his shoulders, straight up. Mm -hmm. It was the craziest thing to, to see in, in firsthand. I've never seen anything like it. So we and can... It, oh, go ahead. No, I'll just say, so that was about when I started doing the engine building because they needed somebody that consistently do that. And that that's, yet, like, like I was telling on that other podcast, Mm -hmm. It's a whole nother story. I should have said yeah. it's more than just another podcast. It's like <laughs> another three hours. It's, it's a whole nother <laughs> book. Well, I wanted to skip it. We can say the C1 was not a success, but Michael did find success with the next bike he did. Exactly. So this is, this is the thing I like to try and get people to understand is even though, and I try, I'm trying to be as nice as possible when mm -hmm. I discuss that bike. With that said, it's real. This is, these are the problems that were there. We didn't talk about him much because I didn't want to screw with Michael. I, I, you know, I enjoyed working with Michael. Not a lot of people did. He, he didn't suffer fools and he, um, he respected those who were, who were good at what they did. And me and a few other people were good at what we did and he didn't screw with us. So he, he was a very polarizing character though. And so a lot of people uh, are, would left disgruntled, and then would make it dismissive. And I don't, I never want to be like that. So I don't really tell this story or I haven't because I really haven't. So let's talk, to, talk had, about had to want to, right. So let's but, get into but, the but success. That's why I say when I want to go yeah. through that, you go to the next, which yes. is the, what ended up happening and all of these failures and all these problems were all focused on the electric version, which was an amazing thing to be part of. So that there we were in I would say November, December of 2008, uh, all the money had dried up. We were looking at, um, I, I had already accepted a job at Ducati and I was going to start in the new year, but I was still there and we were organizing and setting up all of the other, all the excess stuff to try and get it to where we could put it into, uh, into storage. Mm -hmm. And I get a call from Adrian Hawkins the, uh, the, the, he had not, he was no longer with the company and he was like, Hey, you, is that R1 chassis still laying around there? And I'm like, yeah, I was standing right next to it at the time. He's like, do you think Michael would sell that? I'm like, well, sure. What do you got going on? He's like, well, I think I'm going to make a zero emission bike for the Isle of Man. There's this thing that's happening next year. And it's a, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about doing a hybrid, uh, Oh, what is it when you not straight electric? It is the hydrogen. You know, he, oh, he yeah. was trying oh, to fuel, think of a way to do a, a hydrogen electric fuel cell setup. This was Adrian's idea. So I said, well, you should give, uh, give Michael ring. He, yes, we have that chassis. You could, you, I'm sure you could use it cause it's just sitting here collecting dust. So that started it. And that was him and uh, Michael having conversation and Michael at the time in the depths of despair from uh, everything kind of, starting to slow down, um, people leaving, uh, only having a skeleton crew to just kind of keep the lights on just in case we could get the funding. 
uh, thinking, oh shit, this is, this is an opportunity, right? I, I can probably do something with this. So he started gathering together local, and this is local to Portland or Seattle people to, that had experience with electric bikes. And this is before, mm-hmm. this is just as everything was building with Tesla. Yeah. This is yeah. just as everything was there at this time in 2000, early 2009, there weren't a lot of people that were screwing with internal permanent magnet motors on vehicles yet, or not that were at this level, right? There might've been things like, so you know, let's just say the um, Prius, right? Something like that. Mm-hmm. You would see that in hybrids, but it wasn't ubiquitous. So they, they started looking around at that and got into this one motor. I can't remember the name of it. I think it may be Agni. DC motors mm-hmm, that were right. brushed DC, just like something straight out of your, your old drill and um, got this group of this, another hard scrabble group of people that had electric experience to sit down in a round table environment and, and discuss what they could do. And they had, that was the, that was the beginnings. And I was still there at the time. I got to sit through these first few meetings. It was really cool to figure out what it would look like and how they would do it. And that was a very interesting thing to see. Then to watch it go from that first iteration, which wasn't very successful because it was a, kind of a hodgepodge, but as it, as it is, it normally takes about three iterations of any particular mm-hmm. thing, whatever thing you're going to make before you get it right, right? And this one, that was the first, and it was kind of okay. Then the next iteration was like way better, and I think that was the one that ended up actually winning that same TT0 Isle Man thing. Yeah. Then the, the, the third iteration was the one that broke the 100-mile-an-hour record mm-hmm. and, and on and on and on. He continued on with nothing but success based on that, based on just doing the TT0 stuff and some local things. I can't remember what else he raced, but I remember seeing him and the team at Laguna Seca one year because there was an electric race, right? So yeah. there were some certain things like that, but I don't remember the, the series. And just to recap, it's the TTXGP, and it takes place at the Isle of Man on the mountain course. And so 2009 was the first time they entered, and they didn't finish, which is not unusual. I remember back when yeah. Kenyon was, Ken yeah. was racing zeros, and a lot of people never finished the races. They would batteries would overheat, stuff like that. 2010 sure. comes back and wins and sets a uh, course new course record. 2011 two riders uh, taking first and second place, right? 2013, yep. one again, setting a new uh, record, um, an average speed of 109.675 miles per hour. Yeah, at Isle Man, uh, which is crazy. Um, so now he's like got yeah. success. This is 2013. But there is an end to the story, and, and it's not it's not a happy ending. Uh, no, and it's a, it was a strange thing to, to be around, especially if you were a student of the sport that knew what happened to John Britton. It was a yeah. it was a tragic thing to be involved with because again, Michael was a person about Portland, Oregon, and Portland, Oregon is a a large town, small city. So all everybody knows everybody, uh, especially in the motorcycle realms. The circles are tight. And I always kept in good stead with Michael. I was working for Ducati, but I would go over there and volunteer my time to help out with the TT effort a couple years. Uh, you know, I still had friends that worked there and it was an interesting thing to see. I mean, that was at the sharp end of the electric development. I mean, at the same time, interestingly, 
Alta was getting going, right? Mm-hmm. And they were at the sharp end trying to iterate on the vehicles that they were making. This was when everybody was doing lightning, um, mission. They were all starting right about the time, but Michael was out there actually putting it all on the line and doing the thing and getting it to Europe and racing in this prestigious race, which was not easy, right? That was a, that was a major effort every year. It's not like you're just going down to the local track, just getting to the Isle of Man, getting the thing set up, going through all the customs, managing all that was a pretty gnarly deal, Mm -hmm. let alone trying to get a bike around a 37 mile course around an Island. And isn't it the North sea? Yeah. Whatever it is, whatever yeah. see it is, it's crazy. Just the whole thing about it is just insane, and that's what made it even cooler. So again, if anybody is listening to this and wants to to get a little bit of a, a, a of a history lesson on that, there's a movie called Charge. Yes, and I don't know if it's easy to find, but again, I haven't watched that in a long time. I was at the I'll never forget being at the premiere of Charge here in Portland. It was a it was a good time, and having him do a a stand-up discussion with somebody on the on the stage. It was great. So Charge was the first one, and they might have done another one, but I can't recall. But that's a good that's a good movie to watch if that happens to be on the YouTube's, because it gives you an even better idea of what happened after the um, the birth of a racer, Motos's thing. So both things that are well worth watching. So yeah, so he's having this great success, and then in 2013 came the bad news, and he was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. And uh, would be dead within a few years. And yeah, 2016, I believe. Yeah, 2016. And it really does yeah, I, pa- parallel the Brit- John Britton story. You know, somebody with this yeah. amazing idea and driven and creating and, and, and going to expand the boundaries of what we're doing and then gone. And the bikes that he was making at that time, again, I'd like, I, you don't, it's like somebody needs to, somebody does need to document the the iterative changes between all of these machines because there was a lot of genius to it that went from and, and this is michael assembling teams of people that could do the thing and i think over the years he figured out where his limitations were like you earlier you're talking about him as a rider i think the main thing was he was taking the risk and he didn't want anybody else to be on this weird prototype thing so he stayed he kept other people off of it for the most part and not only in special situations. And on the engineering side, I mean, he wasn't an engineer and his ideas were grandiose, but they weren't always practical. So it took getting engineers that could communicate his ideas to the computer straight up, right? And figure mm-hmm. out the best way to do the thing. And some of these later versions of those of the E1s, there was some sick brilliance that was so cool where the suspension components were b- replaced, where they, where the batteries were placed, how they did the initial um, setups of the end of, of the motors and how the regen worked and the power production and having been at Alta, let me tell you, that's the, the, the bulk of the issue with getting one of these electric bikes to work is getting the mapping correct. So when you turn the throttle and request torque that you get what you need, right? And no more. So that's an interesting dynamic. So whether it be trash control algorithms or the engine braking algorithms, et cetera, they were working on all that heavily. And Michael was deeply invested and in every single zero and one in the code, right? He wanted to be part of all of it, in addition to also wanting to direct the aero and the uh, suspension stuff. So it would be cool to see all the different 
suspensions kind of shown, then maybe that's something that I could work on because I still have access. I still have access to the bikes in some manner, and I actually have access to a, bu- a, a couple of the engineers. So maybe that's something that can be done in the future because yeah. we were all kind of just so depressed and, and shell-shocked from his death, even though we had known for years he survived well past when he should have mm-hmm. with what he had. It was pretty gnarly. So it, it just shows, it goes to show his perseverance. It was pretty gnarly that he was able to continue on and then impart his passion and desires into his sons, Max and Enzo, and having um, his wife, Lisa, stand by him during the bulk of some of the gnarliest times. He had a pretty cool system, whether it be Terry, his dad, the, the, the people that work for him, et cetera. It was a really right. cool thing to watch, and it was, a, it was an unbelievable thing to be a part of, for sure. So, yeah, I, I wanted to thank you for, for sharing that experience. Um, Moto says, if anyone wants to look up any of the bikes, I mean, they're all beautiful. It's spelled C-Z-Y-S-Z. Sis. Um, and it's just a fascinating story of somebody who's, like I said, pushing the boundaries and then gone. Um, before, before we, uh, we finish though, I want to give you a chance to talk about SW Motec for anyone who doesn't know it. This is a sure. German company that's been around. The parts have been around. Uh, they make really good parts, mostly for like dirt and adventure riding bikes, I would say. Yeah. Um, that, that I think that is the that's kind of one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing because yeah. is yes that is how we are known yes because the existing distributor that's still a distributor uh, a great company called Twisted Throttle mm-hmm. has been bringing an SW Motec for uh, well over a decade and they focused on the adventure touring which has been by and large the 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 largest segment and growing segment for a while. But SW Motec makes a lot of parts for sport bikes, a lot of bag systems mm-hmm. for cruisers, uh, cafe racers, and sport bikes. And I think that's what our job is going to be over the next couple few years is to market it so that most people know that it's not just for our Africa Twins or our GSs or our V-Stroms or et cetera, et cetera, that there's parts for everything. So... Um, at the first thing I can say is go to the website, use the bike filter, put your bike in and then start searching. Cause then you can see the vast amount of stuff that we make for pretty much everything. Um, of course there are always going to be outliers and weirdo things, but it, it's a pretty cool deal where it's more than just crash bars and aluminum bags. It is, uh, tank bags that fit mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff and, uh, various, Farkles. There's a lot of farkling going on and, and SW Motec. So we started up to be basically the West Coast representation of SW Motec um, and, and to be a distributor, one of, uh, one of two in the U.S. And that's where we're at. We started up on June 1st and we are experiencing high volumes. It is, it is crazy to be involved with something in this weird pandemic time that you would expect to be uh, kind of in stasis, we are not. We're we're very busy, and it's cool to be part of. And better right. yet, it's being run by a woman. And it's cool to hear that some of you have the stuff on your bikes. Yeah. It's great. I'm stoked to hear that. And it doesn't surprise me because I think a lot of people that are in the know know, but I don't think it's, you know, it's not necessarily ubiquitous yet, so we're going to have to get to that point where more people understand that we have a lot of stuff. 
Yeah, you know what I like about the uh, so I have the crash bars, not you know kind of the bread and butter stuff. Um, they were super easy to put on. You know, one of the things when you're putting things on, like we all know, you know, if the holes don't right line up right, yeah, you know, that's a pain in the ass. Yeah. If you have to, I mean, I've done like you know ratcheting straps to have to pull this thing that way, this the other. <laughs> you know, I found the you know it, uh, yeah. they they lined up really easy, and no joke, I crashed the crap out of my Africa Twin like within a half hour. <laughs> of putting them on. Seriously? Oh, yeah, seriously. I was going to pay uh, a long story short. Anyway, crashed pretty hard on the right-hand side. I went flying off. Everything was fine. And um, and I was really surprised because that's a lot of weight. And I've gone on to, uh, you know, we've done some writing, some some courses with Jocelyn Snow and stuff, and I've crashed it a bunch there. And, and those things are awesome. Um, and the other thing that was appealing to me, you don't break the bank. Um, some of that stuff gets expensive real fast. So I thought it, it held yeah, up sure. and it was moderately priced sure. and easy to put on. So there's my plug. Excellent. I, re- I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I need those little kickstand things. I never think I need one of those kick kickstand feet until I'm yeah. out so somewhere. And I'm like, I need one of those kickstand feet. Yeah. They're very handy. Anyway, I, I hope, yeah. I hope we have them in stock for your bike. So you're going to have to have a check out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the story's fascinating. Eliza's still sorting her microphone out, though. But, um, yeah, reading, like, all the stuff. Did he do the slipper clutch, too? Did I see that? He had a – this was an interesting thing. He was trying to do a, a hydraulic slipper clutch Wait, that you could tune. And it was, like, so you would actually use the um, the slave cylinder – and, and we were trying to get a servo motor that would work so that you could tune the slipper clutch mechanism, not with ramps and balls, kind of in the mechanical way, but with a hydraulic. It never, oh. it never, we never got it working because again, it was one of the like hundred things we were trying to get working at once. You had one hundred things that all needed very precise tuning, and you were trying <laughs> to do it all at the same time, and you're like, oh, why uh-huh. is it going to the left? And it's there's ten things that'll make it go to the left. Oh God! If you only, well, you know, it sounds like you understand. So, did you say you had a a servo motor would operate the clutch in a sense? Well, in in a way, it would. It would. I wouldn't even say I don't. I don't remember if it was a servo. What we're going to call a servo motor or a valve that it would essentially allow you to tune when the hydraulic pressure would either release or pressurize one of the two, right? Depending on what you needed. Like if you're off throttle, I mean, we had e-motors on two, on one set of the throttle body. One set of one side was mechanical. The other Uh set were e-motors. This was before most people had ride-by-wire, but we were trying to to get it from the get-go. We were trying to work that in conjunction with this weird mechanism on the clutch, which is off the front of the motor. And again, we never could get it to go, but a lot of the programming that went into the fuel map was based on those e-motors and, and blipping throttle, you know? Shit, right. I now have a, P, a Honda factory part that I bolted onto my Africa Twin that auto-blips my throttle, and the fact that I can go down to a dealership and order that and bolt it onto my bike and activate it in my dashboard, and it's 2020, Knowing what I know from all that era and watching all that happen and working at Ducati and seeing what they've done over the past decade, it's just mind-boggling to me how easy it is to make certain things work now 
Whereas 10 years ago, it was, you know, engineering the world to make that happen. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Did you guys yeah. then just go to a traditional slipper clutch? Um, I don't think we did ever do that because we never got enough time on the engine to change it. We just basically had a standard lock tub clutch right. while we were testing because we could never get it to do more than five or six laps before something would go wrong straight up. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't go. Yeah. And I mean, I know well, in the racing sense, the slipper clutch is really nice. Yeah. I would say it's hypercritical at this stage. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, at least a, a one that's moderately tunable in any way, shape or form. If you have been racing in any, any form for nearly 20 years, I mean, the earliest slipper clutches were on the VF series, Honda interceptor race bikes that Mike Velasco worked on in the mid early mid eighties, there were split slipper normal clutches and a lot of those bikes and that trickled into the RC thirties. And then you would see it in all the Muzzy Kawasaki's and most of the trick race bikes, but not, not a lot of people understood what they were or what they did. So not a lot of people knew what they were and they were kind of best kept secret. It was only when Ducati, with their dry clutches made it kind of ubiquitous where people would buy them in the late nineties for their trick nine sixteen SPS. Then it started to become a normal thing only then. Right. So flipper clutches are a huge deal and they're a boon for corner entry. And that's where most of your lap time is made up for the, for the most part is on the brakes going into any given high threshold braking cornering scenario. Right. That is where so much lap time is just being able to, come into the corner hard on the brakes and drop down to the gear you want to be and like let the clutch out and not have it break traction and go into it. Yeah. Is yeah. Awesome. Or have it, have it break traction in a nice, smooth, predictable manner so yeah. that it comes around and backs in and gets you pointed in the right direction. So where you can get on the throttle as quick as possible. Right. So it's not always to keep it in line, but it is always to keep it consistent so that you're getting that same feel every time. Right. Um, it's a, it's a very tricky balance to find. And that's where he wanted to make it a, a variable situation where you could tune it, yeah. you know, yeah. get off the track, freaking pull a, a knob or a lever or whatever, and go back on and try or, it out, slide out. Or on the fly. Can you imagine? I mean, most of this yeah. time we were working with trash control systems that were almost telemetry based. We're talking you'd go put out three different transponders on the track at three different points that would triangulate the position of the bike. And you would have trash control at turn one set differently than turn two set differently than turn three, et cetera, et cetera. And imagine also being able to tune the, uh, the slipper clutch to provide more or less slip depending on right. which type of corner you're entering. Right. So it's a, it's definitely what the idea was. Who knows what these MotoGP so, bikes have nowadays, right? At the time, was MotoGP wasn't doing any of this, right? I'm pretty they? sure every MotoGP bike had a lot of slipper clutch going on back then. You know, I, I'm saying I don't know if it, transponders and everything. Oh, yeah, everything. Dude, we were using that. I mean, I there were no that, rules. Well, now there, there were no like, rules that said you couldn't do it, but we were doing it with the AMA. Yeah, a, a, a long time before it was outlawed, clearly, right? So a lot of this stuff has been around for longer than a lot of people think. The factories have been cheating for longer than you would ever imagine, and it's <laughs> it's all big money, right? Yeah. 
yeah. big money. You know, it's funny yeah. you were talking about the um, the electric races on Isle of Man. I was watching some of the uh, eMotoGP this weekend. I don't know when they were, when the actual race was. I was watching MotoGP, and I just started watching the E because we were having this please, conversation. Please, please, before you say anything else, don't talk about who won anything. I haven't gotten a chance to see anything. <laughs> okay, I've been riding my dirt bike and Ben. Okay. I was riding my dirt bike today too. Uh, good, good stuff. They so all no, crashed. I am, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so there will e-bikes. be no spoiler. Um, but I'm, it's, I'm watching these e-bikes and the way these guys are are spinning the rear wheel coming out of the turns. You know, we were at, Isn't it actually. Amazing? You know, well, two things come to mind. We were at the One Moto Show watching the flat track racing up there. I think maybe it was Alta there when they were yeah, they racing. But yeah. I remember after the races, they were doing laps on it. And it would kind of break traction. But the idea of the way these electric bikes can break traction so quickly, um, going on Isle of Man has to be just insane. Sure. And that was what I was saying. Most of the, most of the lap time comes from sitting in front of that computer and creating an algorithm that keeps traction in place because you've got you can unleash all of the power at once with these bikes so the altas the dirt bikes the technology of the motors and the chassis and the batteries is there but really it was that algorithm that's controlling the throttle from when you request torque to what was happening at the rear wheel especially in a inherently um tractionless environment like dirt it makes for a really interesting and very difficult thing to have to tune. And uh, all of my Alta brethren did a really, really, really good job setting that up. And that's one of the reasons why the Alta was so good from the get-go, because the algorithm was good. Now, what Michael did and what his team did at Isle of Man, for sure, was part and parcel of all what has trickled down throughout all the industries, uh, whether it be um, like Harley and the uh, Mission and the, the racing that was happening in that time where all of the, all of the electric bikes were having to up the arms race to get better. Um, that all, that's all, everything that we're seeing now is descendant from that. And it's a, it's really complicated. It's not an easy thing. There's so many different variables and it's not always, uh, the, the simplest thing to be able to tune things for any given rider, right? That's the thing is you're trying to tune it for like, this vast swath of people that may or may not be able to use it as good as they think they can, right? Yeah, you know who does make it look easy, though, as we wrap this up? I remember watching Josh Hill ride that thing. And, uh, gosh, I want yeah. to say we saw him first down at Pomona, Pomona, Pomona at the rhythm races and then yeah. going stuff up in Portland and then video of him taking that Alta through skate parks and stuff. So yeah. I think we all, we all were great. a little bummed when Alta got snatched up by Harley because I think we saw what was going to happen. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anyway. Aww. Oh, well, all good. That's things. another show that we, another we can take show. that to another show. All right. And on that note, um, I think, I guess we'll wrap this up. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I would assume that we still have the mic issue and we can, or, or you, you want to just get rolling on this one or I was gonna uh, s- maybe have to revisit it some other time. Well, I think, I think we're, we're going to wrap it up anyway, because we at least have a couple more podcasts here, I think, to talk about. But yeah, Liza's still having her mic <laughs> issue. Enough. So she, uh, okay. she asked us just to wrap it up without her. But it was such okay. a treat, man. What a hidden tre- treasure all these stories are. Yeah, right on. I appreciate that you guys want to hear them, because, you know, if you, if you can tell, I like blabbing about them. Yeah, well, thanks. Oh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, thanks for coming on and sharing all this stuff with us. It's, it's just an amazing insight into everything that you guys went through in the development. Um, that's, that's some really, really cool stuff. 
Right on. I appreciate that you appreciate it because believe me, not many people can get it. And it's weird to be able to actually talk about it with people that kind of know <laughs> and understand how gnarly it was. Yeah, no well, I'd love to know where a lot of these little prototypes, besides the broken ones you have, there's probably a little room with this stuff tucked away somewhere, a little treasure yeah. vault. No, the the sons have the sons have it. A lot of yeah. it actually. There's one of them is sitting at the local Ducati shop. If you wanted to come up to Motocourse in Portland, um, one of the winners of the TT Zero is sitting in their in their in their showroom. So it's there. Nice. That's wild. Cool. Very cool. All right. Well, thanks again. We appreciate it. Yep, thank All you right. guys very much. You guys have a good rest of your evening, and I'm going to go watch MotoGP. Yeah, hey, you're in my mind, it. and we'll catch up before too long, hopefully. <laughs> right on. Okay, we'd love to come back. All right, right thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Well, that was a cool story. Yeah, that was really awesome. So should we talk like... about Liza now that she can't say anything? Liza, <laughs> why don't you just call in with your phone? <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap it up. Liza's got to yeah. take a dump. Bagel, why don't you take us out? <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, please check us out on uh, motorcycles, motorcyclesandmisfits.com. Uh, send us emails. Uh, check out our Instagram. Check out our videos on YouTube. And uh, many, many thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who help keep the podcast going and help keeping the Recycle Garage going, too. Uh, your contributions definitely are put to good use here. So thank you very much. And um, all right, well, uh, I will sign, uh, sign us out. Uh, this is Bagel. It's Charlie. Oh, I guess it's just me, Naked Jim. Don't be a kook. Liza! And, and Liza this is Liza. <laughs> and we are out of here. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs>